Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Right before I proclaimed that gospel, I looked down and suddenly thought I, I, I thought I was I had prepared the, a homily for the wrong gospel. That's a terrifying thing as a priest. It's like, is this the twenty fifth Sunday? Okay, we're good. this is what happens when I don't have a deacon with me. I just I suddenly freak out. Okay, here we are. Speaking of gospels, there are four gospels. We all know this. Four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of the four were written by eyewitnesses, John and Matthew, and two of them were written by Friends of eyewitnesses, Luke and Mark. Luke and Mark, what they did is they gathered stories, they gathered testimony from eyewitnesses, and they compiled their gospels for the Christian community, right? That's what Luke says at the very beginning of his gospel. After considering everything carefully, most excellent Theophilus, we put together a count in a logical order for your benefit. Da-da-da-da-da. Wonderful, wonderful, good. All right. Now, the repeated and unanimous testimony of all the early church fathers... Uh, is that Mark's gospel was an accurate record of Peter's teaching and preaching. In other words, Mark's gospel got its primary source material from Peter. Where do we get that? Well, from the Acts of the Apostles, there's this figure named John Mark who is the traveling companion of Peter, right? All right, so why am I telling you all of this? Because I wanted to bore you. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, I'm telling you all of this because... The gospel that we just heard, right, from Mark's gospel, in all likelihood, was recorded about 30 years after the resurrection. I think these timeline things are important. So what we just heard, it wasn't written during the ministry of Jesus. It was written about 30 years after the ministry of Jesus. It was written in Rome. That's where Mark was doing most of his writing. It was written in Rome in the midst of the persecution of Nero, right? Nero, who was the psychotic despot of Rome who was looking to blame someone for the massive fires that destroyed a third of the city, right? So this massive persecution erupts, and Mark is writing this gospel in the heart of Rome, in the belly of the beast, so to speak, and you got Peter, what he's doing is he's recollecting from Mark these stories, and in particular what we just heard, like, you have to imagine Peter recollecting this anecdote from Mark, like when he and the other apostles, when the other guys when they had no idea, still at the time, what was really going on, right? Peter is telling a story from the time when him and the other apostles had no idea what was going on. They really had no idea who Jesus really was. They really had no idea what this whole thing was about, right? That's the vantage point. That's the, that's the timeline. Like, this was before, like, the resurrection, before the sending of the Spirit that illumined their intellects to help them understand and piece things together. This was before they began to realize as Christians, that what Jesus did, that victory comes through, like, what appears as defeat, that life comes through death, that triumph for the Christian comes through things that look like catastrophe, that for Christianity, the way up is down. They hadn't really learned that yet. They were still in the process. They were still in formation. They were still beginning to learn that, right? They hadn't learned all that yet. So here you have Peter giving Mark a window into where he and the rest of the fellows were at, in this point in their journey, their walk with Jesus. So you got Jesus, remember, imagine Peter retelling this story. Jesus had just predicted or told again the impending doom of his passion, his death. But he says this weird thing about resurrection. We don't really know what that means. 
They don't ask him about it any further. They keep going on their merry way. And Mark says, I love how he says, they did not know. They did not understand the saying. And I, behind that, I hear, I hear, again, I hear Peter talking to Mark, going like, yeah, we had no clue what that one was about, right? We had no clue. We had absolutely no clue. So they continue their journey through Galilee, right? They come to Capernaum, the hometown of Peter and Andrew and James and John. They, you know, hometown boys, they see all the people that they grew up with, right? And all along the way, they're discussing, arguing, Mark says. So arguing, Peter says. They were arguing, debating, forcefully discussing who was the greatest? Who was the greatest? Like, how do you, I mean, I just, I, I know we just hear this, these gospel stories and we just kind of move on, but like, how do you imagine that conversation, right? It's a long walk. Like, where do you picture Jesus being in that crowd? Is he like way ahead of them? Is he way behind them? Is he in the midst of them? In order for them to like plausibly have this debate, this conversation, where do you picture Jesus? I know where I picture him, but I don't want to tell you that. I want you to take some time and pray about that yourself. Where do you picture him? And then, like, how do you picture that conversation happening, right? Like, what kinds of things were they talking about? What was their, what was their criteria for determining who was the greatest amongst them, right? Like, I imagine one of them being like, yeah, Jesus gave me the money back, right? He entrusted me with all of our money. This is Judas, by the way, right? This is Judas. He, tried, he gave me the money. That's a pretty big, important job. Like, clearly, fellas, clearly, ching, 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 clearly I'm the greatest, right? I don't see you holding the money bag, Simon, right? Or I hear them saying, like, you know, remember that one time that he's, like, he sent us ahead to that town in Samaria to prepare for his coming? Like, he didn't ask you guys to do it. He asked us to do that. Like, clearly, he's entrusting us with a bigger responsibility. Clearly, we are the greatest, Right? Or John, I imagine John being like, well, like, he, he's always pulling me to his side and having very deep conversations with me. Like, he's not, he's not doing that with any of you guys. Like, he must think I'm something unique, something special. Clearly, I'm the greatest, right? Or then a picture Peter, his, all of his bravado, right? A picture Peter, all of his bravado being like, yo, fellas, any of you get nicknamed The Rock? Yeah? Anybody else? Anybody else the guy on whom the church is going to be built? Raise your hand. Anybody? No? Clearly, I'm the greatest, right? flexing, right? Like, I think that's something like that went down. Like, that's what I mean. Like, they're discussing greatness according to the rubric of their own devising, their own understanding. So they arrive in Capernaum, right? Jesus turns and asks them, already knowing full well what they had been arguing about. And he asks the question, what were you arguing about as you walked along the way? And, like, I hear the tone of my mom and dad when I was a little boy, when they already knew the thing that they were about to ask me. Like, I was already in trouble. They're like, what were you doing over there? Right? <laughs> Nothing. They get real quiet. They get real quiet. And I love how the narrator comes in. Right? Remember, the narrator is Mark telling the story from Peter's perspective. Right? Peter's vantage point. And I imagine, I picture Peter laughing really hard at this point, just laughing. Like, like you do when like, you look back on those moments of your life, those seasons of life, and you think, like, what was I, what was I thinking, right? You think back on like, like the thoughts you held very firmly maybe in college or those decisions you made back then, and you're like, yeah, that was ridiculous. <laughs> like, what was I thinking, right? 
we were arguing about, Peter's like, we were arguing about who was the greatest. This is what I want you to notice. If you hear nothing else in this homily, this is what I want you to hold on to. Jesus does not rebuke them for their desire to be great. Jesus does not rebuke them for their desire for wanting to be great. He doesn't condemn that desire for greatness in them. He looks at you and me, and he doesn't condemn it in us. He looks at us, and he looks at that part in our hearts that says, I want my life to be great. He looks at that part in us and says yes to that and amen to that. But here's the thing, right? Here's what Jesus is trying to convey to Peter and the apostles He's trying to convey to us, like, fellas, like, you do not know how to adequately assess greatness yet. You don't know how to adequately assess greatness yet. You, do, you have the wrong measuring equipment, if you will, for measuring out what a great life is. It's like you're trying to measure distance with a thermometer. Like, you got the wrong standard. You got the wrong units. You're looking at it all wrong. You do not know how to determine whether a life is great or not, whether it's well-lived or not, whether it was meaningful or not. You're using all the wrong benchmarks. You're going about it all wrong. Like, I, I just imagine, I just really was, like, taking a lot of time just sitting with Peter this week, imagining Peter now as this old man telling his story, sharing his story with Mark in Rome again, his heart has been so unbelievably changed, so unbelievably transformed over these 30-plus years, right? He's been through so much. He's seen so much. He's experienced so much. He's suffered so much, right? And he knows probably that he probably doesn't have much time left. He knows that Nero's looking for his scapegoat, right? And I, and I also wonder if at the end of his life, his heart was riddled with doubts, thinking, did I actually, did I let him down? Did I do what he asked me to do? But I, I just picture Peter telling his story to Mark, and this is part of Peter's story, that, like, in the ancient Jewish world, in the time of Jesus and the apostles, if you were a young boy, by the age of 12, you would have been invited into what's called the Bet Midrash, the school of study in Torah, right? So at 12 years old, if you showed promise, if you showed, like, that, like you had the chops, the smarts to do this, you were invited into this school. And if not, you didn't study Torah anymore. You went home and you apprenticed the trade of your father. And that's, that was the life you lived. So here you have Peter. Think back to the beginning of his ministry, back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus finds him as a fisherman, which means that he had already been passed over. That's a part of Peter's story. He had been passed over. He had been told, you don't have what it takes. Go home and live the life of mediocrity, the life of everybody else that everybody else lives. Apprentice to your father. I imagine Peter going home. He had all these dreams of building a bigger and better life than his own dad. I imagine him having dreams of building the family fishing business even beyond what his dad had done, right? I imagine him, he felt like a real, like a real man when he finally bought his own fishing boat, right? He wasn't using his dad's fishing boat anymore, but he was using his own. And then, man, when he finally bought a second boat and a third boat, he was really something, he was really coming along in life. He was really successful, living a very comfortable life. Then one day, into the midst of his plans for making his life great, this preacher shows up. This man shows up along the seashore of Galilee. He looks at him in a way that no one else had ever looked at him. And he says, follow me. And, because, and for reasons that Peter probably still to his dying day couldn't explain, he followed him because there was something in his eyes. 
Because he looked at this man who said, follow me, and he sensed real greatness in him. Look, this is, I guess, the point, that we're still talking about Peter today, not because of his impressive fishing business. We don't remember Peter today because of the influence he had in the Galilean economy 2,000 years ago. We're talking about Peter today. We remember Peter today because, because he said yes to do what Jesus, he said yes to Jesus. He said yes to doing what Jesus invited him to do, to live a life of self-giving, self-surrendering love, to pour himself out, to embrace the little ones, to live a life where he, like, he wasn't in control, to receive from the Father. Like, that's why we're talking about Peter still today. That's why we know the names of the apostles today. That's the reason. Like, did Peter become great? Yes, absolutely. Like, you've been to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Like, the dude who's buried beneath that thing, clearly he must have been great. He became great, but not as a result of trying to be great like the world says be great. Through power and notoriety and influence and all those things. Like, the great ones of our tradition, the great ones of the church, the great ones of humanity are the little ones, the vulnerable ones, the lovers, the servants, those who hold on to nothing, those who give everything, the ones who lead quiet, hidden lives, lives of immense love and immense sacrifice. Like because for the Christian, right, the, for the Christian, greatness is not about power. Man, does our world need to know that. It's about love, which requires vulnerability, which requires receptivity. It requires a lowering of oneself, getting over yourself, becoming like a child, which is why Jesus puts a child in their midst. Look, there's something about the littleness of this one in front of you that is the secret to greatness. Perhaps this is the biggest thing because this all requires submitting to the poverty of not knowing what my life actually accomplishes. If we want to be great, like Christ invites us to be great, we have to submit to the poverty of not knowing what my life accomplishes. If I am constantly obsessed with what is the impact, where are the ripples going, what is my legacy, who is remembering me, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. So many of us want to see the evidence of our greatness. But if greatness is bound up with love, we have to let go of the need to know where the ripples of our life lead. I want to end here this morning with this homily. I want to quote again from one of my favorite all-time books from one of my favorite all-time authors, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. And if you haven't read it, here's the basic premise that you have this, uh, this sort of group of ghosts who come to the outskirts of heaven. They're on this tour bus, if you will, and they're being beckoned by angelic, heavenly saints to to enter into heaven, to enter in, to let go of what they're holding on to. The main character is this guy named George MacDonald. And at this one point in the book, he thinks that he is seeing this vision of of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The way that C.S. Lewis writes it, he's... You're, you're led as the reader to believe, oh my gosh, he's, he's being given a vision of the queen of heaven, 
right? There's this procession and angels and spirits and all of these things. And this radiantly beautiful woman suddenly is before him. And George MacDonald is asking his guide, this saint from heaven, like, is it, is it her? And this is what his guide says to him. No, not at all. It's someone you'll have never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. George MacDonald responds, she seems to be, well, a, a person of particular importance. She, yes, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. And who are all these young men and women on each side of her? They are her sons and daughters, his guide said. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. And every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their parents, he asked? No. There are those, who, there are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming in a certain fashion her lovers, but it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And what are all these animals? A cat, two cats, dozens of cats, and all these dogs. Why, I can't even count them. And the birds and the horses? They are her beasts, the guide said. Did she keep a sort of zoo? I mean, this is a bit too much. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. And in her they became themselves, and now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it is like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Friends, I just want us to contemplate today, and maybe this week, our hunger and desire for greatness, because Jesus himself put that desire to be one of the great ones in our hearts. And he has shown us the way. And what we have to stop doing is using the wrong criteria for measuring that. We measure the greatness of our lives in conformity to the love in our lives. I just want to invite us to contemplate that, to rest in that, to be challenged by that, to be comforted by that. Amen.